A bead of sweat broke out on the forehead of the man as he sat there that day looking around the circle nervously. One by one, he gazed into the eyes of each of the other people there in that room, mustering up the courage to say what he knew he needed to say to them. It caught on his throat. His throat was dry and raspy as he spoke the words. My name is Bill, and I am an alcoholic. With those ten words... Bill W., as he is now famously known, helped to catalyze one of the most significant movements in human health and wholeness of the last century, a movement that has touched literally millions of people with hope. As many of you know, the ministry of of, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has helped to spawn now dozens of other Uh, recovery movements, ranging from uh, Narcotics Anonymous to Overeaters Anonymous to Gamblers Anonymous to Sex Addiction Anonymous, and on and on and on. Almost every sphere of human struggle is now touched by this recovery movement, helping millions of people begin the process of spiritual exodus from the bondage of addiction toward the promised land of new life. What is it that accounts for the life-altering power of this kind of a ministry? What is it that explains the fact that in engagement with one of these recovery groups, people are able to accomplish changes they could never seem to manage on their own through their own willpower? The answer, I am convinced, has something to do with what God does when people enter a circle of real community. Not just a crowd of people, but a real community, a place where people are truly committed to listening deeply to one another, to to giving full value to the person sitting across the circle, and to encouraging one another to bear one another's burdens and, and help each other along life's very challenging way. The success of AA has something to do also with what God does when that community loves you enough not simply to listen, but to offer you accountability. By that I mean a willingness to ask you, how's it really going? How are you making progress in growth, in character, in conduct? How are you, how are you advancing towards the goal that you want for yourself? But community and accountability cannot really happen without a third ingredient. There also needs to be authenticity. By authenticity, I mean an authentic personal awareness that we ourselves are struggling with conditions and needs that we do not know how to fix on our own. Before which, in a sense, given our own personal resources alone, we are powerless Authenticity means a willingness to name this for ourselves and then to name it before others who can help us with it. And this, I believe, is where the ancient spiritual practice of personal confession comes in. 
There is a reason why AA began within a Christian prayer group in 1935. Because it was already a place of confession, of community, of authenticity, of real accountability. And this personal confession is one of the most indispensable secrets to growing spiritually and relationally healthy lives. And I want to think about that great Christian practice with you today and recognize at the very start that it is not easy. It is not easy being authentic with ourselves, much less with other people. Ironically, sometimes the very last people to practice real community and constructive accountability and genuine authenticity are religious people. Let me say that one more time. It's ironic. But sometimes the very last people to practice real community, constructive accountability, authentic confession are religious people. Which could be why, in our lectionary reading from Luke's Gospel today, Jesus tells the particular parable that he does. In fact, I'm going to be a little bolder than that and say, this is why Jesus is telling us this particular parable. Hear with me the word of God as it comes to us from Luke chapter 18 and at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... And I love the way he says that. To some who were confident of their own, not all of us are confident of our own righteousness. Uh, Not all of us, I suppose, are being instructed by this particular parable of Jesus. But there are those of us who sit somewhat confident of our own righteousness, at least when we look out and compare it to others around us. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else. Again, not everybody in this room is going to be uh, touched by that particular uh, appellation. But there are those who, who unconsciously perhaps develop over the course of their life an ability to see themselves as sitting in somewhat of an elevated position when compared to a whole lot of other people. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a very committed religious person in in ancient times. And the other a tax collector, a notorious sinner, someone who had collaborated with the uh, Roman occupation, had had taken a a job uh, that nobody else would touch because it was regarded as unclean and was making money off of it often extortionary uh, uh, proceeds off of his work as a tax collector. Jesus goes on and says, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Packers fans. (laughs) No, I'm sorry, it's not there. Or even like this tax collector. I thank God that I am not like these other people. And then he goes on. And he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Are you picking up the big themes here? For the first man, the Pharisee, 
the religious community is the place that he goes to thank God that he is better than a lot of other people he could name, including that guy right over there, that tax collector. Church is the place he also goes to exalt in all of his religious achievements. He's a, he's where he, he goes to be reminded that he's racked up quite a few moral merit badges. That he, he's done a lot of good deeds that he's pretty sure not other people, a lot of other people are doing so much or so well as he is doing them. Do you get this picture that Jesus is painting? Do you realize that many people in our world today think, rightly or wrongly, that this is what most church people are like. Especially those of us who occupy evangelical churches. They think this is what we're like. I attended a conference this past week out in Wheaton along with a hundred other leaders from around our region. And the focus of this particular conference was why we are losing young people from the church today. Why are we losing what is called the millennial generation? These are people 18 to roughly 30 years of age. Why is it that 59% of these people are leaving the church and not coming back? Why is it this very generation that we must pass the torch of faith to Christianity is one generation from extinction at all times. Why is it this this absolutely strategic generation is not remaining in the life of the church? At this particular gathering was a man by the name of David Kinneman, who is now the president of the highly esteemed Barna Research Group, probably the leading authority on religious attitudes and attitudes toward religion in America today. And Kinneman has looked especially closely at this issue of the millennial generation. He has studied this generation very closely and is trying to grab the church by its lapels to force us to recognize the issues at stake there. Now, when I tell you that 59% of them are leaving the church, I'm not talking about pagan kids. I'm not talking about kids that have never been involved in the church. I'm talking about kids that have gone to our Sunday school, uh, made confirmation, uh, been part of the, the youth group at their church or young life out there in the community. Nearly 60% of those kids are leaving the church and not coming back. Even when they start to have kids, they don't seem to be coming back. And when surveyed as to why this is happening, they say, You lost me. You lost me. In fact, that's the title of Kinneman's new book. Kinneman says that the responses that he got to his study of these people boiled down to impressions like these. I was genuinely interested in Jesus and his way. I mean, the way of Jesus is so good and so beautiful and so right. I mean, if people were practicing this way, it could change everything. It could be the hope of the world, these people, these young people were saying. But the people that I, I met in church didn't seem aligned with this way. 
and not even my own parents seem to really be practicing this way. I was looking for guidance from those generations. I was looking for a model of what it looks like to to practice the way of Jesus in daily life, but it just didn't seem to go very deep with them. It didn't seem to change their life much when they got home from church, the church building. Many church people I met seemed to crush questions and doubts. I wanted to know, how does science and, 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 and belief all fit together? What is it? How do we explain all of these other religions? And What about this, the, the, the belief in a loving God and a world of suffering? I wanted so much to get answers to these questions, but the people I met in church got all uncomfortable when I asked those questions, and they just looked like they just wanted to crush those kinds of doubts. And it seems strange to me because the Jesus I read about here, he, he seemed to welcome questions and to travel with doubters. To the millennials that Kinnaman studied, many church people, especially evangelical Christians, and Kinnaman is one himself, seemed like, and I quote, haters and boasters. And this is what upset the kids the most. They they were haters or boasters. In other words, they appeared unusually preoccupied with the sins of other people. With all of the evildoers out there. They were were unusually preoccupied with with gays and, and, and and with people that believed a different political viewpoint and and with with other people that didn't agree they just seemed preoccupied with trying to fix those people out there or else they seemed so proud of how religious they were compared to everybody else do you get this picture i mean are you getting this picture of what these millennials are are experiencing believing in simple terms the behavior of church people did not look or sound like Jesus to their own children. The children of church people looked at the church people and felt that the, that the behaviors and the words they were meeting didn't sound like Jesus. And they could not see how a religion like this could possibly shape a better life or a, or a more hopeful world. Even if the belief system, even if the catalog of sins that these church people had was a biblical catalog, genuinely. Their general tone and approach to these things were such that the younger generation simply could not see themselves identifying with it ever. It was like the critical, prideful religion of the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus tells. That's why you lost me, they said. Haters and boasters. Now, this is really disturbing to me. Um, because I've got kids that sort of come up through this generation too. You do. You've got grandkids perhaps. Maybe you're in this generation yourself. And, and I'm powerfully conscious of how much we need faith-filled, Bible-believing, spirit-empowered people to carry on the life of our, of our families and our nation long after you and I have moved on. We just need it so desperately. We do live in a, in a world that's got some serious troubles. I know I'm not giving you any news on this. 
There's much talk these days of the moral and spiritual decline of American life, and there is truth in that. We are seeing a mounting vitriol and violence that is statistically, empirically different and more than, than we've seen in a century in, in American uh, history and maybe much further back. We're seeing the worship of vanity and celebrity like a, moving like a wrecking ball through our society. I mean, that, 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 our, that our news outlets are occupied with the backside of Kim Kardashian. That this is the thing that's being absorbed. The worst, it is a wrecking ball, as a popular song of today uh, often puts it. The breakdown of family life, it's undeniable. The fragmentation of relationships that's happening today. The corruption, the chaos in our political system, the damage being done to the creation God gave us to steward seems out of control. The weak are being abused. The elderly are being forgotten. The stranger is feared. And in the words of the prophet Jeremiah from one of our other lectionary texts for today, we have to admit, we have often rebelled against the good way God gave us. We have often rebelled. We have sinned against you, Lord, you who are the hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress. We've lost our way. And if ever there was a society that needed to re rediscover the way of Jesus, if ever there was a, a, a society that needed a church that was vital as a prophetic and, and a penetrating witness in the life of that community. It is ours. But this recovery is not going to happen based on our current strategies. If it was the case that we could simply organize, picket, boycott, or vote, vote our way into the change of the society, that would already be here. If as Christians, evangelical Christians, we could accomplish the changes we know are needed by simply hammering harder in these ways, I think the change would already be here. We've been picketing and boycotting and ranting and voting for a very long time. The spiritual and moral reformation that we so desperately need is not going to come by yelling harder at the sins of other people out there or by resting in self-congratulation at what we are doing right. Heck, we're not even keeping our kids with that strategy. We're driving them away. What is needed today I'm convinced, are more people who come to church and then go out into the world like the second person in Christ's parable. Jesus tells us that the tax collector stood at a distance. Now, that's an interesting detail. Jesus, in the economy of his words, communicates so much. He stood at a distance from the Pharisee, I suppose, a great distance. He didn't want to be close to that guy. He knew that he could not find any kind of hope or welcome in the presence of that guy. But I think the deeper meaning here is he stood at a distance even from the holy place of the temple. Why would he have done that? It's given away in the very next line. Jesus says that he would not even look up to heaven. Why do you think he wouldn't look up to heaven? Tell me. He was ashamed to look up to heaven. He was self-aware enough to know about his record, the condition of his soul. He, he was deeply aware 
that what he had done in this life or left undone in this life made him absolutely unworthy of fellowship with a holy God. And so he beat his breast, says Jesus. That was a universally recognized sign in the ancient world of of grievous humility, of of terrible, repentant uh, grief over personal failure. And then he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I'm Bill and I'm a sinaholic. I'm a taxaholic. I'm, an, I'm a greedaholic. Sin's got me, God. I just, I'm being wrecked by it. I'm, I'm addicted to money. I've injured all kinds of people along the way. I'm a corrupt man, caught up in a corrupt system, part of corrupting this world that you've made. Oh, God, I'm powerless before the grip of what has got me. I need a higher power to deliver me. Please, God, please, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, said Jesus, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let me try and land this message and send you on your way with a simple assertion and a final invitation, if I may. First, the assertion. Our nation and our neighborhoods, our homes and our kids, our workplaces, our worship places really need people who are living like Jesus. Who move through the world like Jesus. With grace and truth. With love and discipline. They need people like Jesus, at least a little bit more like Jesus. But the truth that we have to face is that many of us, again, not all of us, I guess just some of us, but I find myself in this number, some of us are addicted to so many other sources of security and satisfaction than than the way of the kingdom and the way of Jesus are all about. Some of us, for example, are in the grip of greed. We just are. We are so held by it, we don't even see it anymore. We, we, we are constantly focused on, on the more and better of this world. Uh, we're just caught up in concern about the material life. Some of us are, are, are addicted to our anger, to the flush of self-righteousness that comes when we lash out at the people around us, in our families, in our workplaces, in the wider society. Again, we don't see it anymore. It's part of our system. Others, they see it. They feel it from us. Some of us are, are addicted to lust, the private things that go on that the internet now makes possible. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just amazing how many people are addicted to the object of the flesh they see in front of them instead of a a real relationship of covenant and care. Some of us are addicted to envy, 
Always comparing, wanting, wishing. Some of us, it's sloth. You know, we can't remember the last time we did something bold and daring and difficult to advance a good purpose. We just wait for others to do these things. Or we watch the heroic figures and we somehow gain some vicarious pleasure out of seeing them do these things instead of taking action ourselves. Some of our relationships are being wrecked by our pride or our selfishness or our inability to set sane boundaries or tell the truth consistently to the people around us. Some of us are addicted to substances, to nicotine, to alcohol, to prescription drugs, to, to some kind of chemical. In fact, even now, some of us sit in this place thinking about when will be the next time I can get my supply of these things. There is a lot to confess in this room. Some of us, some of us are so caught up in the addictive mentality about these things that, that, it, that if Jesus walked right up to us, we would be so self-righteous or so locked into our political religion, we wouldn't recognize him. We wouldn't. We, Martha, I talked to this guy at church, you know. Hank, I talked to this guy at church. He said crazy stuff. He's dangerous, that kind of guy. And it would have been Jesus communicating to us. There is a lot to confess. We all desperately need mercy. We need it from one another. We really do. We need mercy and forgiveness from one another. And we need it so desperately from God, our, our creator, from his hands. But the good news is that this marvelous mercy is still available to every one of us. Can I hear an amen for that? Yeah, that's the, mercy, the marvelous mercy of God. It's always available. All you have to do is be willing to admit that you desperately need it for yourself. Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. And things can begin to change. Way back in the 16th century, the church of Jesus, the Christian movement, found itself in a similar moment. It had calcified. It had institutionalized. It had become corrupted in many different ways. And the alteration, the recovery of the Christian movement began to happen when a critical mass of church people began shifting from the dominant mentality of the Pharisee that had overtaken the church and back towards the mentality of the repentant tax collector with which the Christian movement began and first moved out into the world. And for years, people in church had been trying to justify themselves on the strength of how much better they were than others and how many religious rituals and penitential deeds they did. And, and had dared to believe that in doing these kinds of things, they were pleasing the holy God. But in studying the scriptures, individuals like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others 
began to realize the colossal gap between this prevalent version of righteousness and the real holiness of the Almighty God. In fact, there's a legend, maybe not a legend, maybe it was a story that he confessed to someone, that Martin Luther one day was crawling up the steps of the church on his knees. He was moving towards the place of worship on his knees out of a sense that if he only just demonstrated this kind of humility, that he might be able to gain God's approval. And Martin Luther struggled with tremendous doubt about whether he could ever gain God's approval. And then all of a sudden, it hit him how vast was the difference between the holiness of God and even this kind of mock righteousness. And he rolled over on his back and let out a belly laugh at the foolishness of his presumption. And the words of the scriptures that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works came home to him with thundering clarity and the Reformation began. O Lord, it will be by your mercy alone that I am saved. Gradually, over time, more and more began to realize that no amount of ritual No amount of pretending, no amount of pointing fingers at other sinners could possibly save them. And confessing that they were powerless before the grip of sin in their own lives, Luther and Calvin and others threw themselves upon the grace and mercy of God alone. God alone and a marvelous mercy began to pour out uh, for them. As they marveled at the wonder that Christ would die in our place while we were yet sinners, would pour out his blood for us upon the cross for our forgiveness. And the recovery of heart, of vision, that that realization began uh, to establish in people, led the church out to be an influence in the culture around them. And God used the new church that was born out of this confessing, humble, authentic Christianity to begin to transform Western civilization in some pretty wonderful ways. Brothers and sisters, that can happen again. (laughs) It sure can. It can happen again. It needs to happen again. God says in his word, if my people, that's you and me, that's the church, if my people who are called by my name, we call ourselves Christians, little Christ, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, from the presumptuous way of the Pharisee, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The brother of Jesus wrote to the church, confess your sins. Confess where you're addicted to objects, to processes, to something other than a relationship of integrity with God and others. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. So here is my closing invitation. Let's do it. Let's actually do that. Let's get more humble about our need of mercy. 
Let's, let, let's, let's face up to what we need to confess. Let's confess it to our spouse, to our best friend, to our pastor, to our counselor, to our small group, to confess to some community of people that our lives are a mess in this particular place. And we need care and accountability, help in addressing that need. We need fervent prayer. We need God's merciful renewing power to work in us. Let's actually do that. You see, the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, has never been the haters and boasters club. That is simply the church that God hijacked. The true church of Jesus has never been a building. It's never been a a, a mere museum for religious symbols and artifacts, no matter how beautiful some buildings are, and we're blessed with a particularly beautiful one. That's never been the church. The true church of Jesus is a perpetual and mobile meeting of sinners anonymous. That's how we began. That's how we have to continue. Or maybe we should be called sinners unanimous. Because we are all in need of mercy. So, let me say it again. I am Daniel. And I'm a sinaholic. And I keep coming to these meetings because I need community. And I need accountability. And I need a place to be authentic. Believing that the life-changing power of God is here. Because along with John Wesley, these two things I know. What a great sinner I am. And what a great Savior Christ is is and I know that he has mercy for you too please pray with me merciful God we give you thanks that you are far more willing to hear and forgive our sins than we even are to speak of them We confess that we are often too ashamed to lay the reality of our life before you. We admit that we are frequently too concerned with impressing others to talk honestly with them about our struggles. We concede, dear Lord, there are probably whole areas of our life where we've become so accustomed to living out of step with your character and kingdom that it doesn't even occur to us to think about confessing those areas. Merciful God, forgive us, forgive us for all of this and more. Forgive us for what we know we've done and for what we do not know we do. Establish a deeper health within us, a fuller communion with you, a more authentic community with one another that as broken and forgiven, humble, recovering people, we may go out as agents of life change into this world you so love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In his name we pray. Amen.